morning, good to be with you all as we worship together uh, this morning. Um, well, this morning we're uh, concluding uh, the Advent series that we've been in for uh, these weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, a series that we've been calling uh, Stories of Grace and the Story of, of Jesus, in which we've been looking at uh, the story of uh, the stories of the women who are included in the family line and the genealogy of Jesus uh, that we have recorded in Matthew chapter 1. And over the last few weeks, we've looked at uh, the stories of Tamar, uh, uh, of Ruth, of Bathsheba. And this morning, we come to uh, a, a much more well-known story, that of, of Mary. Uh, but hers, as, as we'll see, uh, is another story of grace. And we just had the account read for us. And Mary, in those verses, uh, we are told when the angel comes to her that she found favor with God. In, in some translations rendered, you are highly favored by God. And that, of course, begs the question, how does one find favor with God? How does one become highly favored? Because I think it's fair to say that we all desire to be highly favored. Uh, the famous actor, uh, Ben Kingsley, the Academy Award-winning actor, uh, many of us remember him um, from his portrayal of Gandhi. Uh, in an interview he gave a, a number of years ago, he, he talked about how he hadn't forgiven his parents for not accepting him as an actor. Uh, they wanted him to be something else. Uh, the expectation was that he would go to medical school like his father, uh, but Kingsley wanted to be an actor. And in the interview he said, there was an old actor our family used to love. His name was Danny Kay. And I remember my father referring to me as our little Danny Kay when I was about seven. He says, that was the only remotely positive comment I, rem I remember from them. They never praised me or acknowledged a gram of talent in me. Their way was to mock, when are you going to finish with this acting lark? That sort of thing. But then in 2002, Ben Kingsley was knighted by the Queen of England. And it was an event that he, he talks about as having a deep impact upon him. In the same interview, he said, I told you my, my, about my parents and the fact that any kind of embrace was totally absent from my life. So to be embraced by Her Majesty, I felt like stopping people in the street saying, my mom loves me. Because that's what it felt like to me, the filling of a vacuum in the universe. We all long to be highly favored. You know, Elton John is currently on a, I think, a really lengthy farewell tour as his performing career um, draws to a close. Uh, but a few years ago, Elton John, uh, in an interview with Elvis Costello, he talked about uh, when he was first starting out that his hero was Leon Russell, uh, the singer-songwriter who has been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Elton John remembers the first time that he felt validated by his music. He said, I came from England and being a huge fan of Leon Russell. And to have him accept me and kind of take me under his wing and be so good to me, to mentor me, it meant the whole world to me and helped validate me by saying, well, if he thinks I'm all right, then I must be all right because he's my hero. You know, the favor of a hero the favor of our parents, it all matters. It sets a trajectory for our lives. It matters if we are highly favored or not. And so the question becomes, who gets highly favored by God? How do you become 
highly favored by God. And if you are highly favored by God, what does that produce in your life? Well, from this passage in Luke chapter 1, we're going we're gonna to unpack these questions a bit this morning. Who gets the favor of God? How do we get it? What does it pr- produce in our lives? First, let's look at who gets the favor of God. And it's actually very surprising. It's very surprising that Mary is the one God chooses. That, that Mary is the one to whom the angel comes and says, you have found favor with God. Because who typically gets favor in this world? Well, it's the prominent ones. It's the wealthy ones. It's the powerful ones. And and what happens again and again and again in the Bible, it's a theme that we see repeatedly throughout Scripture, and we see it here again in Luke chapter 1, where where God kind of turns the tables. He upends things. He turns things outside in and inside out. Uh, What you have here uh, in Luke chapter 1, it screams at us that God chooses the underdog. God chooses the outcast. And that the favor of God is completely surprising. It is completely unmerited. And, and there's a word for that in the Bible, and it, is, and it is the word grace. Grace is unmerited favor. You can't earn it. You don't work for it. You can't produce it. It's grace. And it's given to the most unlikely. Now, why is Mary so unlikely? Well, Mary's unlikely, first of all, because she's poor. You see, in that culture, every parent knew that your child had to be redeemed. You had to make a redemption payment for your child. And so the rich would give these you know, wealthy, lavish gifts as the redemption price for their child. But Mary, well, as we would discover later on in the gospel accounts, she gives turtle doves, which was the redemption price for the very poor. Not only is she poor, but she's also young. She's likely 12 or 13 years old. You know, 12 or 13 years old, this is when in, in that ancient culture, girl, young girls were betrothed to, to be married to someone, and then they would spend a year or so with their families getting ready, preparing to be given in marriage. And so she's poor, she's young, she's unwed, and she is from nowhere. She is a, a nobody from a nowhere, nowhere town from a place called Nazareth. Nazareth in, in, in Galilee is a, place, is a place of disdain. At one point in the Gospels, a line is given, can anything good come from Nazareth? This is, this is a place of disdain. The Jewish people did not look highly on the people from Galilee. Judea, that, that was the place where you wanted to be from. That was, that was the part of Israel. That, that's where all the good stock came from. That's where you wanted to be from. I mean, if you were writing the script today, you know, surely you would have God come to, to where? You would, you would have God come to one of the great cities uh, in the world, see like London, or you would have God come to, you know, New York or, or, or Paris or Tokyo, somewhere world-renowned. I mean, this would be like God coming to Guerneville, right? It, 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 it's totally off the beaten path. You're, you're going, it's obscure, This is unusual. Of all places, of all cities to choose, Nazareth. So she's poor, she's unwed, she's from nowhere. She's also a woman. 
I mean, maybe not to us, but to them, it would have been very surprising that God would grant his favor to a woman. In that ancient, very patriarchal society and culture, women weren't even allowed to give testimony in a court of law. Women, women didn't receive favor in that culture. They were, they were marginalized. They were valued simply as having the ability to, have, to produce children. They did not have status. And yet God's favor comes to a woman. Now this shouldn't surprise those of us who have been tracking along through this, this series because we know that when we read through the lineage of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, his family tree, that, and it's easy for us to think as we're going through all these things, like why does it matter who begat who, who, you know, that, you know, who begat who and who begat who and all of that? Why, why does it matter? Why do, we, you know, why do we even care? Why is it in there? Well, the answer is, as, as we've noted before, in the na- ancient Near East, your lineage, your family tree was your resume. It presented to the world who, who you were. It presented to the world your worth. And, and, and so you would, in that ancient culture, never include in your family tree. The, the, the family tree that you presented to people, you would never include women. Women were not part of the family tree. They were not listed as part. Because again, because of the, the status women had in that society. And yet you read through the lineage of Jesus... When you look at Jesus' family tree, not only do you see that women are included in Jesus' family tree, but they're women who were either moral or societal outcasts. Tamar was involved in incest and sexual entrapment. Rahab was a known prostitute. Ruth was a, a Moabite, the ethnic enemies of Israel. Bathsheba, well, her story, as we saw last week, involved abuse uh, and adultery and murder. And now Mary is nobody from, no, from nowhere town. What's happening here? It's absolutely beautiful. God, his favor flows to those whom the world disregards. And look at, look at Mary's song. I mean, she, 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 can't, she can't believe it. She's, she's bursting forth with, with joy over and over through through her song, he has looked on what? The humble estate of his servant. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. It's the lowly who get the favor of God. And who doesn't get the favor of God? Well, it's the prominent ones. It's the rich ones. She says, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has sent the rich away empty. In Mary's song, those who have nothing are juxtaposed with those who think they are something. Those who, who know they are nothing are juxtaposed with those who think they are something. And those who think they are something are not favored by God. Now, now, how in the world do we apply this? Because if we're honest, we're, we're not the lowly ones. We're not the poorest people on the face of the earth. We're just not. But remember Jesus once said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, it's, it's, it's much easier for the socially and economically disenfranchised to gravitate towards this idea of spiritual poverty. That our greatest need exists outside of our accomplishments, 
outside of what we bring to the table. That unmerited favor has to come from the outside in, which is why the largest segment of, the, of, of, of Christians in the world globally are who? The poor and the oppressed and the disenfranchised. The poor have always have and always will flock to Jesus. And what this means for so many of us is that we're not the spiritual insiders. For many of us, we're not typically the first people that gravitate toward the ideals and vision of the kingdom of Jesus. And it means that it takes an incredible work of God for us, living in this day and age, in this city, with these kinds of um, (coughs) opportunities and resources around us. It takes an incredible work of God for many of us to become spiritually poor. It takes an incredible work of God to fight against the, the delusion that our accomplishments is what give us meaning in life. Our accomplishments are sufficient to give us what we need in life. Friends, we have a, a great capacity to delude ourselves. We, we, we are a culture of posturing. We, uh, we posture in the, in the workplace. We, we want credit. We want everyone to, to know and to see, you know, how well we've done, how, how well we're doing. We posture on social media. We, we want everyone to see <coughs> how amazing our, our trip was, how, how beautiful our family is. We posture with our kids. We have those bumper stickers. Fortunately, I don't think... They're, they're so popular as they once were, but, you know, my kid's an honor roll student at such and such a school. You realize Mary's bumper sticker could have read, my child's God, right? <laughs> but she doesn't do that. She doesn't do that. She knew she was chosen. Why? Because of unmerited favor. God chose her, the undeserving, the lowly. You know, there are people, I just want to keep extending this for a second. I I don't know if we're uncomfortable enough yet, but there are people who devote their lives to bringing a message of grace and hope to people in prison systems, to people who have committed great crimes, trying to, to win them over to the love of God. And, you know, we, we think that that sounds nice and, and, and appealing, but have you, ever, have you ever really thought about some of these stories? These people who, who go into these prisons? One of, one of them, his name is, is Roy Ratcliffe. You know who Roy Ratcliffe baptized? Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, what do you make of that? How, how does that work? It was said in prison that he became a sweet Christian man. Now, we're not going to sit here and <coughs> have a discussion about false repentance, true repentance, all of that. Let's just, let's just get that gut reaction uh, here for a second. Do we, do we even have a category for that? Do we have a category for it? You and Jeffrey Dahmer walking together in the new heavens and the new earth. That's uncomfortable, right? 
You want to know what a Christian is? A Christian is someone who actually believes this. I've committed a crime. I've committed a shocking cosmic crime. My sin took God to the cross. It killed him. My sin took him to the cross. And so the biggest shock of all is that I would get God's favor, that you would get God's favor. That should be the shock of the century, that there is a God who loves us in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of us taking him to the cross. G.K. Chesterton said, he had this great thought, he said, when you ask a moralist, um, that's someone who's self-righteous, someone who's <coughs> assured of his own performance and, and sure, of, sure of themselves. When you ask a moralist, are you a Christian? They say, oh, of course, of course I'm a Christian. And they're almost put off by the fact that, that, that you ask the question. But when you ask a Christian, are you a Christian? Christian just laughs at how implausible their inclusion in the family of God is. They can't believe that they're actually in the family of God. It is the biggest shocker of all. That's who God comes for. He comes for the lowly. That's who gets the favor of, of God. Now, secondly, how do we get the favor of God? I mean, does God just give us all a pass, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what we've done. Well, let's look at this for, for a second. The angel um, comes to Mary and says, you will call his name Jesus, which means he will save his people from their sins. That's, that's what his name means. You call his name Jesus, or he will save his people from their sins. You see, sin, self-centeredness, brokenness, rebellion, uh, it's not an entirely unique concept. Um, every Major religion understands this idea that there is a gap between humanity and the divine. And that you can't just stroll into the presence of God and have relationship with him because there's a gap. <coughs> we have sin, we have brokenness, we have rebellion, whatever religion calls it, there's this gap. And every major religion says says that. But every other religion, if you're wondering about what is so unique and, and so distinctive about, about Christianity, about the Christian gospel, well, here it is. It's just this plain fact. Those other religions send you a list to follow, a philosophical principle to adhere to, to take hold of, a messenger to fill the gap. But in Christianity, in the gospel, it's not like that. In Christianity, in the gospel, God doesn't send you a principle. He sends you a person. He doesn't send you a messenger. He sends himself. Jesus doesn't come to show you the way. He says, I am the way. An angel comes to Mary and says, you will call his name Jesus, which means he will save the people from their sins. The angel did not come to Mary and say that he will come to give us some ways to improve our lives. He will not come to give us a list of rules that we must follow if we want a relationship with God. No, God will do it. That's what, that's what Jesus means, God will do it. He, he will, you will contribute nothing to your relationship with God, nothing. 
He does it all. How does he do it? Well, he lives a perfect life. He lives the, the life that you and I were called to live but didn't. And then he dies a sacrificial death, taking what we deserve, the judgment that we deserve. And in his life, what he does is he produces a perfect righteousness. And at the end of his life, he gifts it to you. This is how we have favor of, with God. We have a Savior. And at Christmas, God presents an offer to the world. Either you can, you can go with Jesus as your Savior, or you can try to save yourself. And all, all the gospel is saying, don't go that way. It doesn't work. You can't save yourself. You can, you, you can trust that Jesus was good enough, or you can try to be good enough. But if you go that other route, how do you know? How do you know that you're good enough? How do, you, how do you know that you've ever done enough to make up for the fact that we're not the people that we want to be? I mean, how do you know that you've ever been good enough? I mean, it's a recipe for a spiritual and religious roller coaster. You're up, you're down, you're, you, you get disillusioned, you're exhausted, you go through the motions. Do you hear the freedom in those words, Jesus saves? He does it completely, author and finisher. That's what can snap you out of spiritual and religious disillusionment and exhaustion and fill you with a sense of awe and wonder is to know that in your lowest moment, in your darkest hour, in all of your guilt and all of your shame, you are nonetheless the beloved of God. Why? Because Jesus saves. So we've looked at who gets the favor of God, the lowly. We've looked at how we get the favor of God, Jesus saves. And finally, what does the favor of God produce in us? That are, what are some of the tells that you're beginning to understand that this relationship with God is based on grace? Well, here's the first one. I'm just going to rifle through three of these really quick. The first one is an honest processing. Mary does an honest assessment of the facts. The angel comes to Mary and, and says, you're going to have a child. And, you know, it's easy for us to think that Mary was somehow, you know, supernaturally equipped for this. The angel comes and says, you're, you're, you're going to be with child. And her first response is, of, of course, I'm up for the task. But that's not what it says. Surely she pondered about these words. She wondered. And you see Mary's question there. Well, well, well wait a second. I haven't been with a man. I haven't slept with a man. How, how, how can I be with child? She's looking at the facts and going, I don't understand this. And she's questioning. She's bringing her questions, her doubts. And it brings up this great question. Is it okay to do that? Is it okay to question God? Is it okay to doubt what God is doing in your life and to doubt him and his promises? Well, I think Mary thought so. The psalmist certainly thought so. I mean, you read the psalms, you'll find that there are these people undergoing these difficult circumstances in life, and yet they're bringing their whole selves to God. They're saying, I don't understand, you know, why you're doing this. Where are you, God? Why do you stand so far off? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you dealing with me in this way? Where are you? I don't get it. And what's beautiful 
about the Psalms is they're, they're, they're always taking their doubts and their curiosity and their questions, not away from God, but to God. And that's what Mary's doing. She's having this dialogue with God. I mean, isn't it beautiful that we have these accounts like this in the Bible, because they remind us that we can take our whole self to God, that He can handle it, He can take it. In your reflection quotes, there's a wonderful quote on, the, on page one of your worship guide. It says, Those who believe, they believe in God, but without passion in, in the heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt. And even at times, without despair, believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. What did the psalmist understand? What did Mary understand? They understood that this is a relationship, that, that, that we, we, we deal with God. And if there's something I don't get, if there's something that I don't understand, I actually believe in a God who can take it. And not only is he a God who can take it, but he's... He is a God of grace. And, and you realize if you don't have a God of grace, you don't if you don't understand how highly favored by grace you are, then you will not take your doubts to God. You will not take your questions to God. Why? Because, because you're tiptoeing around this God. You don't want to upset him. You don't want to, to disappoint him because the implicit belief inside our heart is this, I have to keep it together. God wants me to keep it together. And if I bring my whole self to him, I'm not keeping it together. Friends, you are the highly favored of God. And that's a, that invites an honest processing with God. Here's the second thing. Not only, not just honest processing, but a desire for community. I mean, we didn't print this, this text in your worship guide. But the angel brings uh, the word to Mary, and Mary says, okay. And then that next, in the next part of the text is, is she breaks out into song. But, but we skipped a part. We, we didn't put it in there. What, what Mary does is, is she processes this word from the Lord in community. Uh, she goes to Elizabeth, into the home of Elizabeth. And you could just picture her in the home of Elizabeth. I, I just think I, heard, I, I think I just heard something. I think I just heard a word from the Lord. I know it's going to sound strange. I know it's going to sound weird. But he told me that I'm highly favored, and my child is going to save the world. I know this sounds crazy. And Elizabeth says, oh, you ain't crazy. You are highly favored, because I got the same message. And it's not until that moment that she processes in community that she breaks out into song. That's the moment for her when the penny drops. She brings her whole self to God, and then she brings her whole self to community asking Elizabeth to speak into this, here's the point. You never get there on your own. You realize that? You never, you never get there on your own. You need other people to remind you regularly. What? <coughs> that you are actually highly favored. Because every day, people are reminding you of the opposite. That the most important thing about you is what you bring to the table. The most important thing about you is what you can produce for the world. But are you surrounding yourself with a group of people who are reminding you that the most important thing about you is that you 
are the beloved of God. There's a word for that group of people. It's called the church. That's what we're to be about. That's, that's what we're called to do in each other's lives. See, if, if your faith is, is anemic, if you're wondering, you know, how do I get out of this, this spiritual funk? Go see people. Go see other people who are going to surround you and remind you of who you are. And the last sign here that you are understanding the grace of God in your life is a joyful submission. An honest processing, a desire for community, and a joyful submission. Um, after the angel gives her the words, she says in, in verse 38, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary is, is doing what? She is surrendering her will to God. Why? Because that's how it works. That's the deal. The angel says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Do you realize every parent before and every parent after gets to do what? Name their child, not Mary. The angel comes and says, you don't, you don't name this child. This child names you. You're not going to control this child. This child uh, is in control of you. And, and Mary opens her up, her, herself up and says, be it so, I am the Lord's servant. Christianity is a surrendering of the will. It is, it is saying, if you have saved my life, Save me from my life from my, save me from my sin and and this relationship is all by grace if you have if taken the judgment I deserve surely there there is nothing that you can ask that you can't ask of me and are there areas in your life that that God can't speak into not there God not there not when it comes to what I do with my money or what I do with my body, or what I do with my relationships. This you can have, this stuff is mine. Mary, no, Mary is giving God, uh, you, you see what's happening? She is, Mary is giving God the keys to her life. But look at her. She does, she's doing it joyfully. I mean, think about it for a second. She's not only giving up control of her life, she is giving up favor before the community. She had nothing. She was poor. She was from a nowhere town. What do you think was the one thing that a young girl like Mary would have taken pride in? Her chastity. It's the one thing that she would have valued the most. I'm betrothed. I'm a young Jewish girl. This is how it works. I, I get betrothed. I save myself for my husband. This is what I have. And guess what? It gets taken from her. In the eyes of the community, the only conclusion is you couldn't keep the vow. She, she would have incurred communal disgrace. <coughs> but it begs the question, why? Why would she endure this? And the answer is simple. She has found that the favor of God, she's found the favor of God more beautiful than the favor of men. That's it. And there's a joy inside of her. Let me tell you, if you never start giving up control of your life, never stop caring about what other people think of you until you find 
You will never do that until you find the favor of God. Have you found it? Close with this. Tim Sanders uh, was the former chief solutions officer at Yahoo. He does leadership coaching, and one of the things he writes about is, is he urges managers and supervisors um, to let their subordinates know how much they are appreciated. And he's, he's written a number of books about it, and, and he tells one story about a man named Steve. And Steve had resolved to to visit each of his employees, all six of whom he had not seen face-to-face in over six months, even though they worked in the same building and on the same floor. And Steve wanted to tell them how much he appreciated them and name one thing they did excellently. And so after he does this, Steve gets a visit from one of his software engineers. His name is Lenny. And to Steve's surprise, Lenny presents him with an Xbox. An Xbox, for those of you who don't know, is a, is a gaming console. And, and Steve was taken aback because he knew that, that Lenny had taken a pay cut um, over the past year. Um, but the Xbox came with a note. And, and Lenny shared the, that the money for the, this Xbox had come from the sale of a 9mm pistol. And Lenny told him of his, his mother's death the previous year and of the ensuing loneliness and depression he had experienced. And, and here's what the note said. Lenny wrote, I started a routine every night after work, eating a bowl of ramen, ramen uh, listening to Nirvana, and, and getting the gun out. It took almost a month to get the courage to put the bullets in the gun. It took another couple of months to get used to the feeling of the barrel of the gun on top of my teeth. For the last few weeks, I was putting ever so slight pressure on the trigger, and I was getting so close, Steve, so close. Last week, you freaked me out. You came into my cubicle, put your arm around me, and told me you appreciated me because I turned in all my projects early, and that helps you sleep at night. You also said that I have a great sense of humor over email and that you are glad I came into your life. That night I went home, ate ramen, listened to my music, and then I got the gun out. It scared me silly for the first time. All I could think about was what you said, that you were glad I came into your life. The next day I went back to the pawn shop and sold the gun. I remember that you said you wanted an Xbox more than anything, but with a new baby at home, couldn't afford it. So for my life, you get this game. Thanks, boss. If the affirmation of a boss can mean that much in a human life, how much more can the affirmation, the favor of God, mean in our lives? Do you have it? Go to Jesus, he'll freely give it to you.